say some stuff. The Enneagram, a system of nine things. It's attributed to Gurdjieff, whether as his creation or as his transmission of ancient Central Asian esoteric lore. And that puts me in a tight spot because on the one hand, I'm a supporter of Gurdjieff's work as a deep, powerful, idiosyncratic, integrative, transrational, spiritual developmentalism. But also, I don't give a fuck about my own typology, so I never pay much attention to people when they talk about the Enneagram, except as a general evocative symbol for the transformational architecture of psyche and cosmos. But maybe that's typical of my Enneagram type. Here to set me straight on all of this is the samurai of the diamond path, the hotness seeking <laughs> spirituality, author of the self-proclaimed most accurate Enneagram test available, sheriff of personal profiling, angriest guy on the internet, and future Enneagram podcaster, it's Marshall Leon. Hey, Marshall. <laughs> I can't believe you just called me the angriest. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so happy. <laughs> okay, Marshall, the communities that we run in consist of two kinds of people. On the one hand, there's people who know nothing about the Enneagram. And on the other hand, there's people who know even less. <laughs> right, exactly. So, what's the deal with the Enneagram, Marshall? <laughs> what's the deal with it? Well, it's a weird shape. It's, um, it's this thing. Plus a triangle and a circle. And uh, circles, they, each one of those symbols represents a law, a holy law of the universe. Law of one, law of three, law of seven, which you probably know more about than I do. It's possible, but I get to ask the questions today. Being a Gurdjieffian, <laughs> a Gurdjieffian. Um, Supposedly, a Gurdjieffian. There's no way to verify it. It's just slander. <laughs> it's what my enemies say about me. <laughs> He's such a Gurdjieffian. So, okay. So we got these laws. And is it really like... It's attributable to Gurdjieff as like the as like the western popularizer but he may have got it from the sarmoon this is debated it's mass debated who debates it I don't know. I've never heard any actual debates. I've heard different points of view, but I've never heard them engage each other. Well, if you read um, Keys to the Enneagram no. by uh, Almas, A.H. Almas, Keys to the Enneagram, the book is dedicated to the Sarmoon. Who Almas, uh, I believe, is in communication with. Okay. Is that how you got into this through him? Or how did you get started with any kind of interest or involvement with the Enneagram? It might have been related to Integral. It might have been one of those. It was around the same time that I got into it, those things. Uh, but that's not interesting. So 
it's a nine-pointed shape figure. And the symbol itself we know of from Gurdjieff, although Leila Bakhtiar, um, she wrote the book, The Sufi Enneagram. I mean, she basically says that Gurdjieff stole it from the Sufis. And she has, I know, you get sad anytime anyone says anything bad about Gurdjieff. No, I was going to say that wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> He's a rapist too, you know. <laughs> I read it. It's true. I read it on an Amazon review of one of uh, his books or someone else's book about him. Yeah. He's a rapist. Five stars, but rapist. <laughs> Four stars, one star off for the. Anyway, are we going to talk about the enneagram? So, <laughs> okay, so the symbol itself may have come from Gurdjieff, well, probably not, and um, it may have come from the Sufis, but or it may have come from a mysterious Central Asian brotherhood known as, known as the Sarmon. <laughs> yeah. Now, but the essence of the points themselves can be found in a lot of places, including uh, Plotinus, the Enneads, and it can also be traced to it can be found in um, Homer's Odyssey. That's organized around the nine points. And then you've got the uh, the Egyptian Netaru, which there are nine gods or forces of nature, whatever you want to call them. And those also, turns out, correlate to the nine Enneagram types. So we're dealing with... I mean, huh? if somebody likes the Enneagram, it's got to be pretty easy for them to look around at anything that has a nine and be like, hmm, I think this maps on pretty well. Yeah. But there's actually some correspondence in terms of like the essences. Okay. But that's probably a conversation for another day. <laughs> We're here to help people learn about their personalities. Why? Which Egyptian god are you? <laughs> exactly. And who should you date? I want to hear a little bit about why you thought it was in any way interesting. Like, well, you spent some time with it. So it wasn't just something you encountered and went, okay, that's a thing. You went, oh, I'm going to get a little involved in this. Why? What turned you on about the Enneagram, at least at first? It's, well, first of all, it's a typology. And some of us just like to put everything in categories. Um, there's actually a whole typology of people that put people in categories. But, um, you know, I guess what it would probably was, was recognizing my personality type. Mm. And then... Uh, yeah, just recognizing all the truth in it. So you saw yourself reflected. Um, yes. I felt that resonance. 
And that's that's how you're supposed to know your type. Except the problem is a lot of people see themselves in more than one type because turns out there's not just one personality type, there's three. And there's not just three that we have, we have nine. And then we have all the like myriad combinations and dynamics. And so this kind of gets into like my problems with Enneagram as typology, as personality typology. Because the Enneagram as we know, so Gurdjieff didn't apply, he didn't apply the Enneagram to personality types. You know, he used it to choreograph his movements, the Gurdjieff movements. And because for him, it was like a living thing. He called it a perpetual motion machine. So it describes some kind of dynamic that's always in motion. Applied to personality profiling and typology. When does that come in? Yeah, well, so that came in with like Oscar Ichazo. And, you know, he was a... Um, He's Bolivian, I think. Right. And he went to Asia. And he came back and started a, um, a spiritual school in Chile called Arica. And as part of the school, he taught, well, he taught the Enneagram. But the way he taught it was he actually taught 108 different Enneagrams or what he called Enneagons. And only like a few of those basically made it to the West, to the U.S. And um, which I believe are the fixations, the Enneagram of fixations, of passions, of virtues, and holy ideas. And uh, somehow that all got, you know, reduced down into nine personality types, which are basically nine personality fixations and nine passions, which are like the seven deadly sins, except there are nine deadly sins. And some people claim that the seven deadly sins came from the original nine and originated in the Enneagram. So which other two deadly sins would there have been? I believe fear is one of them. Let's take a gander at the seven deadly sins. Yeah. So we have uh, pride, which is two greed, or covetousness, which is five. Well, avarice is a better word for that. It's sort of like hoarding of one's own energies. Lust is eight. Envy is four. Gluttony is seven. Wrath is... Oh, that's a good one. Is wrath, wrath is one. Anger. And sloth is the nine. So what did we skip? We skipped three. 
three and six. So the three, which is interesting that the three and the six got dropped off. Three is uh, deceit. And six is fear. So that completes the Enneagram of the deadly sins, which are actually now the passions. And the way that whole thing works is like, there's the holy ideas, which are non-dual perspectives on reality. And there's more than nine. It's just that they all sort into the nine points. And then when you lose touch with those perspectives, that, that results in a particular distortion in the mind. And that distortion is called the fixation. It's like your mind is fixated at a particular point. It's like getting stuck. And then the course, and then in the heart, the distortion in the heart creates the passions. And so the antidote to the passions are the virtues. The Enneagram of virtues, and then of course the antidote to the fixation is said to be the holy idea or holy ideas at each particular point. So those are the four of Ichazo's original uh, Enneagons, 108. I don't think I don't think many people know what the other ones were. But uh, so then a guy, Claudio Naranjo, he was a I think he was a psychiatrist, and he took he took what he learned from Ichazo and brought it to the U.S. to California to Esalen, and he like mixed it with Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis and um, sort of assigned different defense mechanisms to each type and so on and so forth. And so that became, and then he was part of a group called, or he had a group in Berkeley called Seekers After Truth. And that's where Almas learned about the Enneagram, as well as Sandra Maitri, the Diamond Approach teacher who also wrote she wrote some books on the Enneagram, on the fixations and passions. She has two books. And Almas wrote Facets of Unity, the Enneagram of Holy Ideas. So, but then all of this became like a popular movement. And a lot of the a lot of the spiritual depth was lost and it just became this like, which personality type are you? Oh, I'm a seven. I'm a seven. You're totally a six. You know, it became like a lot like astrology. astrology. And um, I lamented this for a long time. Because what ends up happening is the Enneagram type just becomes another identity. When it's supposed to be 
guiding you out of a fixated identity. So I'll leave it right there for now. That reminds me of a, there's a transcript of a talk Gurdjieff gave in like, you know, 1916 or 1917 or something like that, where somebody asked him about astrology. And he goes into this long rant about how the wise ancient people designed this incredible matrix. But he comes back to saying that it was designed to show you what's wrong with you. So if you're a Scorpio, all the traits of Scorpio are supposed to be what you're opposing in yourself, not walking around excusing yourself for doing things because you're a Scorpio. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it's very natural for people to want to, uh, I mean, make these identities. And it's hard to figure out how it's useful and how to avoid having it be some sort of narcissistic social identification chip. Right. What's what is the utility there? You know, like we can lament the fact that the spiritual richness has been lost and it's been reduced to sort of a personality profiling game. But let's say you wanted to use it in a richer way, or you know, what would you get out of it? Like what's what's the point of knowing your Enneagram type? How does that help you at all? Well, it's sort of what illuminates is like your core tendencies. So for example, uh, I'm a seven. We're both sevens, I believe. And um, the passion of the seven is gluttony. Sort of, which is conventionally understood as like filling yourself up with food and drink. But it has it has broader meaning here. It's about filling yourself up with experiences. So essentially, when you lose touch with yourself, you then lose yourself in the world. And there's like nine different ways you can lose yourself in the world. And for the seven that involves chasing after experiences that promise some kind of gratification fulfillment so it's like it's like this pleasure pain principle uh seeking pleasurable or stimulating experiences while also avoiding painful or difficult experiences. So the seven is said to have this like basic fear of being, being deprived or in like some kind of emotional pain, emotional suffering. And that basic fear then compels us to start planning that's where the, the fixation of um, the fixation of the seven comes in. That's what Ichazo called ego plan. So it's like always planning the future in terms of like, in terms of planning gratifying experiences. So sort of being fixated on 
stimulating or pleasurable experiences in the future. And then in the heart, filling yourself up with those. So that's the seven. And um, so the utility is then to bring aware bring awareness to the sort of uh, programming. It's it's like a central organizing principle of the personality or the ego. So it's a targeted self awareness enhancer. But I think one of the questions, like, if you were a Buddhist, say, you might say, well, okay, there's general self-awareness, and this is a more precise tool because it zeroes you in on some patterns that are particular to mm -hmm. people. But what if you just zeroed right in on direct self-awareness of yourself as an idiosyncratic individual, right? Is that a more precise tool, or are there things that you're going to miss about yourself if you don't have this conceptual augmentation of your self-awareness. Yeah, well, most people don't notice these patterns, you know? And the Buddhists generally don't focus on your idiosyncratic self, you know, your unique consciousness individual consciousness generally but there's merit and like understanding the same kind of patterns it just illuminates <clears throat> it illuminates the same kind of patterns that come up now but it's also true that we have all of the patterns so the enneagram doesn't just illuminate where you're at it also illuminates some dynamism some directionality because some people like to say it's not just the points that matter it's actually the lines because all the points are connected you know in a particularly strange way and so seven is connected to five and one And it's said that the, the uh, seven's integration point is the five. So the seven is usually like really stimulated, like excitable and wants to have fun and do all, you know, it's sort of like leaned into the, the 3D plane, like just sort of like stuck leaning into it. And the seven can integrate by sitting back at five. Now five is what's called the uh, investigator, the observer. What do I call the five? The sight. And fives are, they're detached. They're detached from themselves, detached from reality. They're just sitting back and they're observing everything from a distance. The five's passion is avarice. 
So there, which, which is a sort of like a hoarding of one's energies or resources. It can be physical resources or it could be energetic resources. So, so the seven is always leaning into the world, into the physical plane. And when they sit back at five, there's like a settledness and a presence that comes in. So the Enneagram not only illuminates where you're at, but where you can shift into or where you need to shift into. Do people keep the same type all their lives or could you have a different type when you're a little kid than you have as an adult? Is it stage specific? I can give you several different answers to that. <laughs> well, first, let's let's back up a second. They're different theories, right? So one of the theories, which has sort of separated itself from the Enneagram, because they don't actually use the symbol or the connection points, they've just identified nine soul families. Nine families of souls. They're the ones that correlate them to the Egyptian deities. So the idea is that you come into this world and you're a member of one of nine soul families. Okay. So that's one theory. And by the way, they type you based on, um, it's like by physically resisting you. Physically resisting you, and then the body assumes one of nine postures of strength. Naturally. Everybody. One of nine postures of strength. So there's that. And then there's like the sort of conventional... Enneagram of personality, which says you have one personality type, and that generally does not change. You've got some dynamics at your point. Like I said, seven moves to five uh, in growth or integration and moves to one under stress or disintegration. So you have your dynamics, but you really only have one type, and that doesn't really change. And But you have a wing. I mean, you have two wings, technically. Can't fly without two wings. But our personalities tend to favor one. The wings being the adjacent types. So for seven, that's six and eight. And then seven is said to be a combination of six and eight. So that's that theory. And then there's tri-type. Because the Enneagram does, uh, it's like each, all of the numbers fall into one of three, one of the three centers. So in the head center, you got five, six, and seven. Heart center, you have two, three, and four. And in the gut center, you have eight, nine, and one. 
So tri-type theory says that you actually have a type in each of those centers. So I'm not just a seven, I'm a seven, nine, three. So according to that, you actually do have, you already come into the world with multiple personality types. And these are all actually, so the, the person who owns the trademark for tri-type, she just basically says that these, um, these numbers come together in some kind of unique arrangement, uh, creates a unique kind of personality. But I don't, I'm not that aware of much dynamism in her system. What I find is that the, the points, uh, those three types, or those three points in your consciousness, they're always interacting. And so me as a uh, 793, it's like sometimes those points, like, for example, the 7 and the 9, will gang up on the 3. Because the 3, the 3 is the achiever, or what I call the star. The 3 just wants to get things done. The seven wants to have fun. And the nine just wants to chill. The nine is the peacemaker. Or what I call the chill. Seven I call the spark. Spark wants to have fun. Three wants to get things done. Nine wants to chill. So... The spark and the chill will actually gang up on the star at point three. Say, no, let's not get things done. That's not fun. That's too stressful. It's not relaxing. So these are the kinds of dynamics that arise in any given moment. Seven and the three both very energetic, assertive types. They both want to move forward in different ways. But the nine's like, so they're always hitting the gas and the nine's always hitting the brakes. So the seven and the three can gang up on the nine. So they, uh, there's competition. <laughs> Is there... Is there any objective verification of this, or is that like a, a misguided question? <laughs> I was going to ask you to define <laughs> objective verification. Like, clearly, people are interested in types, and there aren't a lot of great systems of profiling people. Where well, you're going to use astrology, there's Myers Briggs, there's big five traits now, but. Uh, it's not very satisfying the kind of uh, systems of profiling we have out there. So people reach for the ones um, that seem intriguing to them and it satisfies something and they can use it either to uh, 
project their narcissism or as a lens for targeting their self-awareness. But what do you say when somebody says, well, is there any objective validity to it? Oh, you mean like has it been scientifically validated? Yeah. What would, what sure. Do you person who asks that. Sure. Yeah. There's research done on it. There's research done on the uh, on the individual typing indicators, the assessments. And what does that research consist of? What, what things are they looking at? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> but it hasn't really interested me. Yeah. Because um, I'm just... I'm just interested in, like, what can I apply now? Which has led me away from Enneagram as personality typology. And now it's more of a typology of um, sort of like sub-identities or conditioned identities. Now, is that move away from personalities to sub-identities, is that a very seven move to make? Hmm. No, I think it's five. I think it's like getting more granular. Um, because the personality types are basically just big identities that are made up of much smaller identities. And so if I can recognize a particular identity that's coming up, I know what to do with it. Um, I can see it for what it is, and I know how to transform it too. That's getting into the alchemy. Um, but the personality, personality typing actually, when people identify with a particular personality type, they miss the fact that there are all nine points, all nine identities operating inside them. And that's how it's really supposed to be used. I mean, that's how it's used in the diamond approach. You know, you don't just work on your personality type. You work on all nine of them. Because these are all like nine ways that everybody is distorted, egoic. Nine ways that, that happens. And that's you just focus on one and like thinking of yourself as an internal community rather than as a single monolithic identity. Yeah. And there's already, you know, parts theory and internal family systems. And there's already like, I mean, e even the original um, Freudian model of id, ego, and superego is already this like tripartite self, this community it's got to be kind of a wild community, the three of those together. <laughs> so I went online a couple of months ago and I took a dozen Enneagram tests in a row. The results were scattered, but not totally random. There were some numbers I got a bunch and some numbers that didn't come up at all. Uh, and I think a lot of people who've looked into themselves find that questions 
that seem to be profiling questions are a little bit messy and ambiguous and that they could take them in different ways or that it's kind of clumsy, kind of grasping for you. You can see it grasping for you, but you know it's not really reaching for the right part. And then, of course, there's the general issue of whether verbal self-reporting is the best way for people to evaluate themselves at all. What's your take on what's insufficient about how the, the inquiries and the questions and the testing is set up? And I know you've set some up yourself. So what's a good one? What's not a good one? How do they go wrong? <laughs> what's, a good, what's a good personality test? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's mine. And um, it's true. On the website, they do claim it's the most accurate. But that's because a bunch of people took it and they told me that. So I figure, okay, why not claim it then? Um, but it's challenging for all the reasons you said. So the first challenge with creating a good Enneagram assessment is understanding the types. There's a lot of confusion about the types. As you said, there's some people who know nothing about the Enneagram and then another group who know even less. And um, and it's because there's so much confusion. There's so much misunderstanding. It's like people are still, to this day, trying to get to, like, what is the essence of each type? What is the essence of each point? And what belongs to that point that doesn't belong to every other point or any other point? So that's a big challenge. There's a lot of confusion about the four, type four. It gets described in ways that are very nine-ish. So you have all these nines out there thinking that they're fours. Nines also think they're fives. And there's a good reason for this, which I'll get to. Maybe. If not today, another day. So that's a big problem is like, if you don't understand the types, you're not going to be able to create questions that sort of discern that those types. So that's all right. So that's skewing a bunch of them. And most of them are based on older understandings. I think mine is based on the freshest understandings of the types. So there's that. And because of that phenomenon, a lot of Enneagram teachers also mistype. And then they're just perpetuating that and they're describing types in ways that aren't actually those types. It's like this hall of mirrors. So that's happening. And then, yeah, there's the challenge of like, so the Enneagram, there's this whole debate on, which you're probably familiar with from like integral world of like motivations versus behaviors. 
And there are people, if you try to type someone from their behaviors, they say, hey, you can't do that. Because these are motivations, they're not behaviors. Okay. But then most people don't know their own motivations. So how are you going to type somebody, a, you know, a self-assessment that um, gets at the motivations when they don't know their own motivations? Well, you can go by their knowledge of their own behaviors. <laughs> so there's a, there's a relationship, a tension between motivations and behaviors. And so in my tests, actually, I, uh, I combine these different approaches, like self-awareness, what are your motivations, behavior, what are your behaviors? And then the third point is how do other people see you? Like what kind of feedback are you getting from other people about you? Um, which brings in some kind of like uh, intersubjective data. So I combine all of these things and um, hopefully that produces a more accurate assessment. But of course, you know, there's still all these cha challenges, like what do wor certain words mean to certain people? So it's tricky. It's not perfect. I don't really like it. Typing by test. It's actually the worst way to learn your personality type other than all the other ways. <laughs> and it's funny because there are there's this attitude that I've that I share, which is that like personality tests suck. Well, what's the alternative? They say, well, you're supposed to study the nine types and like figure, you know, figure out which one is you. Well, that's assuming that you're studying accurate descriptions. And yeah, it also assumes that you know yourself and you're not seeing, for example, imprints of other people inside you. Because there are certain types, the attachment types in particular, whose there's it's like their sense of identity is more malleable. And it's based on key attachments. So these personality types, threes, sixes, and nines, the triangle types, they're going to resemble other types. They're going to have imprints from their parents, from their siblings, teachers, whatever whoever they're attached to or and or they may identify with they may know themselves more by their wings okay because take nine for example nine is nine represents most more than any other type like not having a self Not having a self or knowing, not having a self or knowing the self. So on either side, you've got eight and one. 
And so they might recognize the one or the eight shining through. Cause that's something that's like very, it's very particular. Whereas the nine is more like in flux. It's more malleable, adaptable, changing. So this is another, this is another challenge with typing yourself from descriptions. And then you've a uh, cab driver by checking the person who's in the back seat. (laughs) Yeah. Something (laughs) like that. And so, and then of course, like, okay, it takes a long time to really grok the types So then what can you do? Well, you can hire an expert. And most experts are not experts. So so then the only other way is to take a test. And hopefully that test sort of best approximates the types with its questions. So there's no um, there's no easy answer, and in fact, I've basically arrived at the point where I'm just like your personality type doesn't matter. Like stop wasting your time with that, because I just want to know what is coming up right now. What's coming up right now, and like how to alchemize those fixations. So that's what I'm playing with. Enneagram alchemy. So you're looking at nine types of things that are coming up right now and how to transform those. Yeah. Nine types of identities, nine types of identities. And there are many within each type. One of the things I noticed in taking a bunch of tests is that there were a lot of versions of the same kinds of questions. Now, maybe that's because people are just copying and pasting from other people's tests, but it also seemed to be that uh, there were certain things about behavior that they'd uh, decided or been trained to look for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're setting up a test, as much as you feel you've moved on from testing. (laughs) What are the things in behavior and even in intersubjective um, awareness of what's going on for you that tend to be the most telling, right? Are there kinds of behavior that don't tell us very much about your type and other types of behavior that tell us a lot about your type? Are there certain behaviors that do tell about your type and certain that don't yeah like does it matter how i hold my fork and knife or does it only matter how i i am on a first date or something like that you know what sorts of things are being targeted by the questions (laughs) right right it's the motivations are really being targeted or the core fear, 
you know, that kind of thing. So, like, as sevens, we like to assure that nourishment is available in the form of something stimulating or yummy. So I noticed your uh, you keep sipping something, which could point to that real kind of like oral narcissism of the seven. Like, it's almost like I am my mouth. And so I'm going to ensure that I have like all of the yummy stuff available that I can just like keep consuming the gluttony just keep consuming this keep consuming reality really the yummy parts of or the parts of reality that I perceive as yummy so like that's one of the things we're looking for like the seven we're looking for examples of it leaving painful or uncomfortable situations and going to or acquiring pleasurable experiences. It's kind of the thing we're looking for. And in a test, in my test, we're contrasting that behavior with a totally opposite behavior. With an opposite behavior of another type. You've self-diagnosed as a seven, which is that what you called the spark, the seven, the spark. Now, have other people into the Enneagram disagreed with you about what type you are every day. <laughs> and what do they usually suggest? Everything. <laughs> Yesterday I was typed for the first time as a two in my entire life. Uh, I get typed as nine a lot. Part of that is that like nine is, it's really close behind. It's in the stacking, so to speak, the, the tri-type. But part of it is that I've just learned to sit fucking still. Like I've learned to sit back and be still and sense myself. And so... People expect to see this like seven, <laughs> but you and I have, you know, a little bit of spiritual development, spiritual practice under our belts. So I get typed as a nine to, um, I got tri-typed the first time as a seven, nine, four. And then I switched that to 973. I thought I have nothing to lose by identifying with another type. And I was feeling particularly slothful at this point in my life where I'd forgotten what it was like to be a seven, a conventional seven. And I became a nine and I identified with nine. And I tried that on for a while. And that was cool. I eventually determined that's not my core type, but it was cool. 
because I got to see, I got to focus on all the nine-ish traits that I have. So, but yeah, I got typed as a, a seven nine four. I became a nine seven three. I went back to seven nine four, and now I'm seven nine three. So, and I believe you're seven nine four, which is interesting because there are people who typed you as that based purely on three collages that you made. Which then gets into typing without verbalization. Yeah, I wanted to get to that because I really liked what was set up there in terms of providing visual input instead of verbal input. It seemed uh, much more engaging and promising to me because it sidesteps some of the traps around uh, our tendency to narrate ourselves in certain ways. Right. Although narrating, once you know the nine types, you, you can kind of get like, what's the narration you're going to be telling about yourself? You know, sort of like the hero story of each type. But yeah, it does bypass the conscious mind. Um, and it gets into something more fundamental. So yeah, you made three collages of just images you chose and uh, posted them to my group and people assessed you accurately, in my opinion, based on those images. That's pretty cool. It's hard to turn that into a science. But it's like, yeah, there are certain um, themes or images, imago, gestalts that you can sort of discern from a person's selection of images. So there's a lot of ways to get at this stuff. Some people do visual identification. Some people will look at your face and say, oh, he's a seven. And sometimes I can do that too. So it's like all this, for me, it's like taking in all this data about a person. And I try to cover all the bases. To what degree do you think this can be automated? How good could an Enneagram AI get versus how much of it always comes down to the personal skill, depth, and experience of a human interpreter? That's a good question. I think I could produce a pretty good AI. Well, let's put it this way. Like if, if we're tracking your personality over time um, or your lack of one, um, we're going to find different, we're going to find all these different identities. We're going to find all these behaviors that have particular motivations. We're going to find these identities at the core. Like a good one that's on the tip of my tongue or mind is the uh, the victim. 
the victim is it's a um i guess what i might call like a leaden voice as opposed to gold it's a leaden voice of the six the victim so it's like we could track you over time and we can identify how much that voice comes up you know and then we could tally up all the voices how much each one showed up and then we've got a pretty decent like psychograph of your personality in terms of which ones are being expressed the most and the least like we could do that we could get a damn good picture of your personality and yeah i think i could think i could program an ai to do that are there partial numbers like does it mean anything to say 4.5 when it comes to enneagram well arguably a four with a five wing is that because it's like when you're fixated at point four on the circle are you right there on the four are you little to the left or a little to the right and if somebody's a little to the left we call that a four with a five wing little to the right we call them four with a three wing so sure you're still fundamentally a four but a four with five flavor there's your smile and nod (laughs) probably the nine the nine's just like i'm playing a role (laughs) my job is to smile and nod (laughs) earth was I thinking of saying a moment ago something about the Enneagram yeah you might be right about that he said encouragingly what I can do oh you have a question I'll, I'll hold my question what do you got I guess I can. I guess I could run through the num- the nine types real quick. That would probably be useful for a lot of people who either know nothing or less than nothing about the Enneagram. No, less than nothing. <laughs> um. So it all starts at ty- type nine, which is weird, uh, but there's a good reason for that. If you look at the fetus in the womb, it's a nine. Strangely enough. Uh, that sort of observation comes it from like a nine, huh? It visually looks like a nine. Yeah. Or? Okay. A fetus looks like a nine. Okay. That comes from a friend of mine, Dave Gray. That observation. So that's the first type is nine. It's also the last type. It's the alpha and omega. And uh, and in some sense, every type is a variation of nine. And everybody is fundamentally a nine, because what nine represents 
in terms of the personality is falling asleep to yourself. That's where the whole sloth comes in. The nine is the most interested in maintaining some kind of homeostasis, comfortable homeostasis. And so, so all of us, regardless of our core fixation, are all generally trying to maintain a particular homeostasis there. So we're all like we all nine. nines. We're all nines. Okay. And what's your uh, what's your term for nines? What name have you come up with for it? The chill. The chill. Yeah, because nines are the most chill. They're the most easygoing, except when they're not. <laughs> and then they're the most angry type. <laughs> um, so what would a, um, if you were a nine, as we all are, uh, or if nineness was what was coming up for you, what would be the key thing to alchemize nineness? Three, and that's illuminated by the um, the triangle, the connection point. Three is known as the three is the integration point. It's known as the integration point of the nine. And so, at nine, you're nobody. At three, you're somebody. So the nine has to leave that like comfortable nobody space, the emptiness where you're both nothing and everything. You're the whole. You're everybody and nobody. So then you move two, three, and you individuate as somebody. That's the move. So when a nine notices themselves doing some kind of self-denial, which they'll do, nines self-deny, self-minimize, self-erase, self-negate, self diminish like self reduce <laughs> huh it's like nihilism but it's nihilism nihilism right <laughs> but it's a comfortable nihilism sort of so any of those like self diminishing behaviors it's like there's a decision point in that moment when you see it you can say, oh, I'm doing that self-diminishment thing again. What's the, what's the alchemizing move here? And that's going to be some kind of self-assertion. Somebody, even something small like, what do you want for dinner? Oh, I don't care. Whatever you want. That's the nine move is to deny what I want. And a simple, simple act of self-assertion is like, oh, I want pizza. Because pizza is 
the nine of foods. <laughs> <laughs> we are all nines and all foods are pizzas. Right. It's a pie. It's a circle. <laughs> so, okay, so the nine counterbalances itself with some kind of transformational self-assertion. Yeah. Move. What comes next after nine? One. And uh, ones are very principled. They have a strong sense of right and wrong. Um, honesty is important to them. Integrity is important to them. Doing the right thing. Being ethical. Upright. Pure. Clean, good, righteous, virtuous. So, and their basic fear is of being like corrupted, being like a bad person, basically. And they tend to become rigid rigid, judgmental, hypercritical of themselves and others, moralistic. And they're just fucking angry. They're angry that nothing is up to their high standards. Reality is fucked up. It's imperfect. So they spend a lot of their time perfecting reality. And so the integration point of uh, one is seven. So, which can be something like noticing I'm doing some kind of, I'm enacting some kind of rigid standard. And so the right move may be to move to seven to play, to become playful. Like, oh, life is to enjoy. It's not just about like putting everything in its, in its proper place. And the seven and the one relationship will reveal that tension that, you know, two people of each, one person of each type in a relationship the ones always want to do what's proper and the sevens always just want to have fun, um, which leads to all kinds of shenanigans. So that's one. All right. What's well, two? <laughs> <laughs> two is um, the helper or what I call the gift. And um, twos are very concerned with other people. Twos want to help other people. And this is, um, you know, a lot of women get sort of mistakenly typed as two. 
because two sort of like archetypally represents the feminine. So yeah, they're they're always invested in like helping other people and making sure other people's needs are met. Um, but they become too self-sacrificing. Their their fundamental fears of being unlovable. And so they set out to be lovable by doing all kinds of lovable things for the people they love. Uh, but they take it too far. They become pushy and manipulative and um, self-sacrificing and then resentful when other people aren't re meeting their needs, so on and so forth. So what the two can do when they notice they're doing this like people-pleasing act is move to four. Four is the individualist or what I call the special. Fours are very focused on themselves. And so when the two integrates to four, they're going from other focus to self-focus. Not what do they need, but what do I need? And this is very hard for the two because it's selfish. And selfish is the worst thing you can be. So what about three? Three. Do we really want to do all nine? Not necessarily. We could zoom through it. Are they reciprocal? Like you were talking about the nine counterbalancing itself or transforming itself with the three. Does the three do it with the nine? So that the nine is actually <laughs> in, in, in like traditional Enneagram theory. The three integrates at six. And the six integrates at nine. Now, so what that means is like the three is all about themselves, all about uh, being recognized um, for their achievements. You know, they just want to be. I call them the star. They want to be the star. And the movement to six, the integration for the three at six is to then focus on the team or the group or the tribe. Not how can I succeed, but how can we succeed? So that's sort of conventionally understood as the... Um, as the integration point of three to six. But I have identified that like, yeah, there are times when the three needs to move to nine. And it has a lot to do with, I mentioned like the three wants to get things done. 
like you shoot an arrow and hit the bullseye that's sort of like the perfect example this representation of the three like they want to hit the bullseye they want to get things done check and they want to get there in the you know the the shortest amount of time they like to move fast but sometimes that forwardness needs to back the fuck up and chill at nine you know they need to sort of resist the three-ish impulse to do and go and instead chill and be at nine so i found it's not so clear and this is debated a lot actually like whether we really just move in one direction in health and the other direction in stress or whether we actually take on we can take on the healthy and unhealthy qualities of both connection points and i found i found that it's necessary to kind of move backwards like we just like i just said in a moment why don't we uh accelerate through the rest of them and just tell me your word for or one sentence about each of them four five six seven eight yeah the four is the um special and they're it's like they're always searching for their identity and yeah they're always sort of individuating or hyper individuating they're always involved in this process of me not me something is either me or not me and they're interested in expressing their unique identity so that's that's a good enough under, uh, explanation of four four is really hard to do justice because everybody that just listened to me say that they're like oh yeah that's me especially types like nine who don't know their identity so they're like oh yeah i want to like i want to be unique <laughs> you know except they're more like i want to like f eventually discover my uniqueness whereas fours are just like sort of just like hyper fixated on it constantly it's an obsession expressing finding searching expressing my unique identity and then getting lost in the depths five we've got the uh investigator or what i call the site and they're interested in understanding reality because if they don't they may not survive 
you know, they don't have a lot of like physical vitality. And so, cause they're all up in their head. And so they've got to understand everything in order to survive. And, um, it's very perceptive as a result, very perceptive and insightful and bring clarity to things. Six, six is the loyalist or the loyal skeptic. I call them the shield. And um, they are interested most in security and maintaining support systems. You know, they're very, they're, they're sort of out of touch with their own inner support, like essential support. They're out of touch with their own guidance. So they don't know where to go or who to trust. Uh, but they align with certain people. They align with people and groups and whatnot to for security. And then they become invested in maintaining those support systems. They spend a lot of time and energy maintaining those support systems while also not really trusting them and not really trusting themselves either. So that's the six, seven. We've already talked about seven, the spark. The eight I call the force. The eight is about power. And uh, lust, lust is their, their passion, which conventionally is about pleasures of the flesh. Uh, for the eight, it can and often it can be and often is that. Uh, but it's more just like this, like, it's more like this passionate, devouring of life. They're the most forceful personality, very aggressive, very short-tempered. How is that um, passionate, lustful, devouring different from Seven's gluttony? Yeah, so the gluttony is about um, variety, many different experiences. Whereas the, the lust of the eight, it's, it's not so much about having many different experiences, but just like consuming whatever experience is in front of you with gusto, right? So it's about like potency, you know, just more, more, more. Seven and the eight want more in different ways. The seven wants more options, more choices, more variety. The eight wants more of what they want. More power, more money, more sex, more food. 
volume. So that's the that's the that's the eight. That's they have a fear of being taken advantage of, submitting to others, um, which creates a kind of suspicious or cynical outlook that it's just like it's a dog eat dog world. It's a jungle out there, and only the strong survive. Which you know you could correlate to the the red. V meme and spiral dynamics. If you had a situation where someone um, politically or corporately was a really intense eight in terms of what they were trying to achieve, but you know, on the weekends they're going to a dominatrix, um, is that an attempt to transform that? Right? Are, are people seeking out balance and medication in all kinds of strange ways? I'll tell you a story, yeah. Um, I've known some female eights uh, who are just like tough as hell who are then totally submissive in the bedroom. And they're just, what they say is like, I'm just tired of like being in control all the time. And so, uh, which shows that, like, yeah, our our sexual essence can be very different from our personality. It's almost like personality gender. So you can have a dominant eight who's sexually submissive. earlier you said and we must be coming to the end of this pretty quickly now um you mentioned that one of the reasons why your enneagram test is so good is that it's based on the freshest understanding of types the freshest of the fresh now i've got to assume some of that freshness is just coming out of your own experience and depth of understanding but where else is it coming from if people wanted to be up to date if they wanted to access sources that gave their understanding the freshestness uh, where would they look who do you think's on the cutting edge of this what's a good source who's doing good work in this area i don't know if i want to answer that Okay. Then <laughs> uh, well, at least tell us why you're reluctant to answer that. Um, I don't think I can answer that either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe one day we'll learn Marshall's secrets. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't want us to have the freshness, <laughs> except through well, him. Well, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, somebody who has written a, somebody who's sort of recognized as one of the original OGs of the Enneagram. And um, he, I was talking to him about how basically all of the, all the how like the sacredness has been lost. Everybody's just using it as like, everyone's using it narcissistically. There's all this politics. Nobody has themselves typed properly, including many of the top authorities. 
And he just said something to me like, yeah, I used to be the same way, but now I think that's actually like what the, what the masters of the Enneagram actually want to be the case. So that the, um, the secrets of the Enneagram are hidden in plain sight. And I thought, okay, cool. And that's, that's a lot of why I wouldn't recommend any particular source, including myself, <laughs> because of, of all the distortion you will inevitably come across. Even if somebody has a particular, a good understanding of a particular type, they may not be in touch with the, you know, they may not be in touch with like the spiritual dimension of the Enneagram. So given all of the, the distortion and the politicking out there, it's hard to recommend to anybody. But I will say this, I will say that um, the Don Riso's Enneagram is pretty good. He's created the Enneagram Institute. And you can read his books. Um, Personality Types is one. Understanding the Enneagram is another. Wisdom of the Enneagram is the third. And um, he, he brought on Russ Hudson later. And then they sort of co-released those books together. So it's a good starting point. Why don't you uh, hold that symbol up for us again? This, this is the law of seven. The hexad made me vanish. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm out of questions. Unless there's anything else you wanted to say about the Enneagram, I say we wrap this up. It's a wrap. All right, man. Thanks for uh, sharing the uh, the thicket of your various takes on this. My pleasure. <laughs>